navigating the datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 41 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. We've covered Oracle Database on this podcast in several episodes, but today I wanted to talk about running Oracle's database in different public clouds. Today we'll be answering questions like, why would anyone run Oracle Database anywhere other than its native cloud? Is that feasible? And what are some of the issues you'd encounter if you choose to run Oracle in another public cloud? Our guest today is no stranger to the Datascape podcast. He's been involved in several of those Oracle episodes. Welcome back to the show, Simon. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me back. Looking forward to the discussion. Absolutely. How are you enjoying your quarantine? Well, I, I was kind of ahead of the curve because I usually am a homebody, so I spend most of my time at home anyway. I just miss being able to go out for dinner with my wife and things like that. I hear you. I desperately miss restaurants as well. Yes, and also we've been quite busy in our industry, so I, I'm a little bit jealous of people complaining that they're at home and they're bored or they're getting through their honey-do list and, and their backlog of home projects not progressing on those as quickly as I'd like to yet, but maybe things will change. What I say is we never know what the future's got at this stage. You day bet. by day, things change. You bet. All right, let's jump right into the topic at hand here. So let's start very foundational. Why would anyone consider moving an Oracle database running on-prem to any public cloud? I think it's part of a bigger picture initiative, most likely, right? Like maybe we've had customers, I remember one in Australia, where their lease was running out on a data center, and they were moving to a public cloud because of that. Other people now see that, you know, we're in a, a worldwide pandemic as we record this, and, and uh all sorts of disasters could happen, so people might have the requirement to be out of their local data center for whatever reason. So I don't think anybody – well, there may be a couple of exceptions to what I'm about to say, but I think that most of the time is part of a bigger initiative, and they have other non-functional requirements to for business continuity or for costs. That's a tricky one because I was almost said cost savings, but I don't really believe clouds is, is necessarily a place for cost savings, but maybe a different way of spending – their money in a way that they get better return on their investment. Okay. Now, there's a couple a couple exceptions to what I just said, though. Oracle is kind of a difficult beast in a lot of ways, and one of them is in their supported versions. So sometimes if they have an old version on-premises, Oracle provides more flexibility with which versions are supported, and they provide more addition options in the cloud. So what I'm saying is you might be running a really old version of Oracle. It's no longer supported for you to be on-premises, but due to fiduciary duties or whatever kind of regulations, you do need to run a supported version. Well, maybe a cloud is an option for that. I think that's a edge case, but it's it's maybe an exception to what I said previously. As technologists, we know there are always you know edge cases and, and circumstances. It's it's never an absolute. So I mean, Oracle has their own public cloud, if you want to call it a public cloud. So why would anybody consider not running it in Oracle's cloud? It would seem to be the best place, right? The way I describe it is. If you have an Oracle database workload, there's the most functional options for you in Oracle's own cloud. So for sake of discussion, to anybody who's not familiar with it, uh, Oracle's cloud is called OCI. Oracle is terrible at picking names. I think I've said this on this podcast before, but I think Azure is a great name. That's a brilliant name because in English, it's not a very common word. I know that it means sky blue in Italian or, or some of the Latin languages and clouds are in the sky. So, I mean, that was a brilliant name um, by Microsoft. Oracle's terrible at names, and 
OCI is what they call their cloud. OCI also goes by a number of other monikers. Uh, bare Metal Cloud Service is what it was called originally, so sometimes we see that acronym in the documentation, or uh, they call it the second-generation cloud because they did have a public cloud that was really uh, not too good, their first generation. This one's a lot better. I know when I was first invited to my local Oracle office, probably about two or three years ago for an OCI training day, I thought, OCI is Oracle Call Interface, which is part of uh, networking and programming. Why do I want to go to an event about Oracle Call Interface, which I really don't need to know the details about, and it's been around for, you know, many decades. So even within their own list of products, they have two products now that same share the same acronym. So anyway, I was saying uh, OCI is Oracle's cloud, and your question was why would anyone not want to go there? And I, I think that comes down to two reasons, okay? One is, unfortunately, an emotional reason. A lot of people are maybe aggravated with Oracle. Maybe they've been through a license audit, which is never a, a fun process with Oracle. Or maybe they want to try something sexier and new, like a, a big data solution in, in Google's cloud, for example, like that. So that's maybe a motivator not to go with Oracle's cloud. And the second one, I think, is more of a technical thing is while the Oracle Cloud OCI has become quite broad, it's also a lot newer than all of the other clouds. And when anything in technology is new, there's a little bit of a break-in period. So would I say it's bleeding edge? Probably not bleeding edge, but maybe more leading edge. And with that always comes the risk of instability. There are motivators, which we can talk about later, of why you would want to do it. But your question was, why wouldn't they? Totally fair. Totally fair. Actually, why don't we cover the motivators why you would choose Oracle's uh, cloud? And then uh, what we'll do, listeners, is kind of go one by one through the other public clouds to allow us to get fairly specific. Simon, yeah, let, let's talk about like the instant motivators other than they built the product and it should be best at home there. Yeah, so uh, that's right. They, they built the product and it should be best at home there and they'll provide you the best support there as well versus I'm working on another project where they, which was on Azure and, and we had an Oracle support request this week and they just said, oh, investigate it with Microsoft. It's not our problem. So they will support it best. But really what uh, the audience needs to keep in mind is that Oracle is very, very flexible. So we can have a lot of different configurations. It's not like a simpler product where you just might install with a single Linux command. So what I mean by that is you might have Oracle RAC, which stands for Real Application Clusters, RAC. And that's a clustered way where we have multiple nodes uh, of Oracle serving one database. You might have it on different operating systems, not just Linux or, or Windows. You might have wide variety of versions and, and things like that. So there's a lot of different ways that we can implement and deploy Oracle. And what we'll talk about here is that when you go to clouds, you're limited. You're forced into a box, okay? There's only so many different shapes and ways that you can configure Oracle. And for a lot of people, that's going to work. But if what you have done isn't going to fit into that box, well, maybe you've got a problem. And to answer your question, the best part about Oracle's cloud is their box is the biggest. And what I mean by that is, they support the most shapes. So let me give you a specific example. I just mentioned Rack is real application clusters, and that means we have multiple computers all serving the same database. That's a horizontal scale-out technology that other databases don't have. Well, an Oracle salesman may come around to, a, to industry, to a company, and say, oh, you're running Oracle Rack? Well, guess what? You can run Oracle Rack in our cloud. 
And people go, yeah, that's good because we're using Rack and we're getting value from Rack. Well, there's catches to that. So part of what they say is true. Yes, you can run Oracle Rack in their cloud and it's fully supported. No, you can't really run Oracle Rack in any other cloud and in a supported way. There's, a, there's always exceptions. There's workarounds people have implemented and people who argue licensing positions. But generally speaking, Rack is only permitted in Oracle's cloud. But then we see some customers, they go, okay, that's great. I got a five-node Rack cluster. Oh, well, in Oracle's cloud, we can only run two nodes, right? Or I've got a Rack cluster. It's running on Solaris. Oh, well, Oracle's cloud, yes, we can run Rack, but we got to convert it to Linux. So in that example, I was trying to show, yes, the box of different possibilities is biggest in Oracle's cloud, but it's not nearly as big as what you can do on-premises. So maybe that's the reason why you would go to Oracle's cloud. Like I said before, supportability, or because you have unique needs, which the other clouds don't provide, but Oracle cloud OCI does. Got it. Okay, just so to summarize, there are uh, several features that are only available in Oracle's cloud, including some special edge version cases. Yeah, so they it's actually more configurations of a normal database is one way of looking at it. More versions of the database are supported. So an example is a lot of our customers are still running 11G, 11.204, which is a very common version of Oracle database. But it's in the paid extended support, which means you need to pay Oracle a boatload of extra money to run it on-premises or in somebody else's cloud where it's still supported in Oracle's cloud. So they're, they're giving a broader range of support. That's another reason. Also, if you have a very high performance system, they, Oracle makes their own hardware called Oracle Engineered Systems, including their, their biggest appliance, which is the Oracle Exadata. You can get the, an Oracle Exadata in the cloud. So you can get real high end computing power optimized for running database workloads. So if you're at that highest edge, of the spectrum, then Oracle Cloud would make a lot of sense for you. Okay, makes sense. And listeners, if you want to get a lot more in-depth on the Oracle Cloud, Simon discussed it in episode 27, probably still fairly relevant. Of, of course, the, things are ever-changing. And any special licensing considerations for other clouds I covered with Bjorn in episode 4 of the podcast. Okay, so let's do a rundown of the big three and why we might choose them and, and special, you know, gotchas and considerations. So let's start with Azure. So why would you choose Azure to as a new home for your Oracle database? So I think I've, I've actually, in the year 2020 already, I've worked on a number of projects involving Oracle on Azure. So that's a very timely one for me. And what I found is customers are going to Azure because they have other reasons to go to Azure. They want to take advantage of Office 365 and Exchange and, and maybe Azure SQL DB and some of the other features and, and technologies that Azure provides. Now, where I come into the picture is Oracle's just part of their overall estate that they're maybe moving into Azure and it becomes a little bit of a problem spot for them sometimes. So first of all, with Azure, we're constrained by the licensing model. It really is only a bring-your-own-license uh, game, which I sometimes call the IaaS or the Infrastructure as a Service solution, meaning all I can really do for Oracle databases is there's no managed service where I just push the button and I get a system that has a database for me. All I can do is build a VM, and on the VM, it's just like a VM that maybe in my building, once it's built, 
it's ready to go. I'm going to download the software, install it, and run it and everything. So that's really our only option in Azure. But the difference really with Azure is in, is performance. Now, I'm going to put a big asterisk because, of course, as soon as you say something, you know, the next week Microsoft will release something brand new or they'll change specs. So clouds are always very dynamic and changing, and that's that's part of the nature of clouds. But as of the time of this recording, most of the general purpose virtual machine shapes that Azure provides are quite limited in resources for running Oracle workloads. So what I mean by that is I did a study with um, a colleague of mine back in January, and we said, let's take the scenario where you have a fixed number of Oracle licenses. And we actually had a very small number, two Oracle licenses, Oracle licenses based on the processor unit or roughly the CPU. So let's say we have two CPU licenses, and what can we do in Azure with that compared to OCI? And Oracle is maybe, you can use whatever adjective to describe them you want. A lot of them are negative, but they're very favorable to their own technologies, meaning they're going to give you more CPU horsepower. Or they give it what's called a core factor multiplier of 0.5, uh, meaning you have twice as much CPU power almost when you run it on OCI as compared to Azure. So first of all, you get way more CPU. But where we really ran into the problems is that when we are dealing with those modest shapes of, of two or four CPUs, all of the virtual machines in the cloud have artificial limiters on how much network traffic they can consume. And that really is not just that your public network for, for networking, but to the storage subsystem as well. So in a traditional computer that you set up in your own data center, you have a SAN network and you plug that SAN fabric in. And it's different than your, your Ethernet network where your public network goes. In some of these cloud vendors, it's one in the same. And they, or they put the same limitations. So to give some specific examples, we would find like an Azure 4 CPU general purpose shape would give 96 uh, megabytes per second of bandwidth to the I.O., where in OCI for four CPUs, we could get, I think it was 512, right? And for customers, Oracle databases, remember, sometimes very I.O. intensive. That can be a real throttle or bottleneck, rather. So I, I guess long story short, um, Oracle database can work fine in Azure, but Azure is not a cloud that's optimized for Oracle, meaning no special shapes, no special options. You build it yourself, and the shapes are quite limited in throughput at the smaller uh, end of the scale. Of course, you can buy a bigger shape, but that means more throughput comes with more CPUs. More CPUs means more Oracle licenses. Oracle licenses are very expensive. So basically, going to Azure means is, is is a lot like you know running it on prem, but on conventional hardware, not Oracle specific hardware. Right, with extra limitations where they're putting these software governors because on-prem you can plug in your SAN network and you can use the full capacity of your disks and your, your SAN, but all of the clouds are putting these governors to say, well, sure, uh, now that we're in a shared cloud environment, no, we don't have all of the capacity of the SAN fabric. We only have 96 MBPS. Okay, okay. makes sense. And so that's also, a, I guess, a, a con in choosing it. So the real choice or the real motivator to choose Azure is because you want to use other Azure features. Maybe you're heavily invested in SQL Server and Power BI and you think that there would be some sort of gain or plus for you 
by, you know, cinching Oracle right up next to it, that sort of thing. Precisely. Now, the interesting part is the announcement they had last summer where they're tight building the interconnects between Azure and OCI. So I, I think that I just saw this morning that actually came out way back last June. It doesn't, doesn't feel like it was that long ago. But Oracle's opening up data centers very rapidly, and some of them they're really trying to co-locate very geographically close to Azure. Because it's like Microsoft used to be the old enemy of Oracle. It's not anymore. Oracle seems to recognize uh, Microsoft as an ally now. I have my thoughts as to why that is. And at Oracle Open World last year, Larry Ellison had lots of really nice complimentary things to say on stage at his keynotes about Microsoft. I think he said Microsoft makes great products or something like that. So I kind of say it's the mantra of my old enemy is now my ally. And what we're seeing in that regard is Oracle and Microsoft are really trying to build a bridge between their two clouds. Now, personally, I hope in my fantasy world they effectively merge and become one in the same. We'll see. With the economy changing very rapidly, who knows what's possible these days. But in the meantime, what they're doing is they're building that bridge with a dedicated interconnect, which they're guaranteeing some of the performance and some of the networking security. It's more than just building your own VPN tunnel between two different cloud providers. Right. And I think what both of them are recognizing, Oracle's recognizing, look, customers want to go to Azure for the reasons you just mentioned, Chris, Power BI, Active Directory, whatnot. At the same time, Microsoft customers are saying, look, running Oracle workloads can be complicated. We can give some VMs, and it might work for a lot of smaller database usages, and that would be fine. But the big, complicated stuff that needs rack, that needs a lot of scale, maybe even exadata, we're not going to be able to do that. So let's partner with them. Run whatever workloads you want in, in Azure, and then run that Oracle database in OCI, and they'll talk to each other quickly and effectively. Okay. It makes sense. Is there anything else you'd like to mention on the Azure front? No, I'm just emphasized that I'm excited about that direction and would like to see that take up more. And I think both Microsoft and Oracle are really pushing and promoting it. So, yeah, hopefully that continues and they're expanding that to more geographic cloud regions. Right. Makes sense. So let's move on then and cover Amazon's AWS. So why would you choose AWS to run Oracle? Well, I, I think it's more of the same reasons, plus one new one, which they were really first to market. I remember in 2006, a colleague of mine showing me that he could get a machine provisioned in AWS, and I didn't really understand it as much back then, but it, it's pretty phenomenal to think that it was almost 15 years ago now that they had cloud stuff up and going. And I hope I didn't get that uh, wrong with my memory, but I think I'm right. So I think... They have a lot of first-to-market advantages and name brand recognition from that. I think that people think AWS, and they just think that's the natural place that people go for with clouds. And they are still the leader in the cloud space, although the, the other big ones are catching them up quickly. A second thing is, unlike Azure, they do have a managed service, right? They call it um, Amazon's Relational Database Service, or RDS, and I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with RDS, but they're always has been, or for most of the time, I don't know the specifics, an Oracle option with RDS. And what that gives you is a couple advantages. It means you don't have to be downloading the software, installing it, maintaining it, patching it. You get that 
push button solution that cloud vendors provide. Now, I say push buttons kind of as a blanket term because we can click and choose options, say create database on a console. Of course, in an enterprise, people will use like a CLI or Terraform or something like that, but it's effectively the same. Okay. So the Oracle solution on AWS includes both an IaaS solution such as with Azure as well as the RDS or managed option? Yes. So actually, let me just take a quick tangent. So the first question is really, where can you run Oracle? And the answer really is you can run it anywhere. Oracle is very flexible. Anywhere you can get a VM, you can run Oracle, including in VirtualBox on your laptop. And I'd even take it a step further. Oracle still provides a free edition, and we've talked about that in this podcast before, called Express Edition or XE. And in the latest releases of XE, it's a full functionally complete version. So it's not limited in capabilities. It really is enterprise edition with all of the bells and whistles. It's only constrained on resources and capacity, right? So you, I think there's a limit in how much memory. I think if I recall, it's only 12 gigs of storage or something like that. But uh, technically, you can run Oracle anywhere, and XE is a great way of doing that if you have small, simple workloads. So, that, so yes, there's always an IaaS solution with XE. Now, where Oracle becomes more sticky and where I'm going to with your question is what cloud vendors they officially support if you're paying for a licensed version of Oracle. So if you don't fit in that XE, you should be paying them for an official copy. It's not Oracle's not freeware. It's commercial software. And, yes, Amazon is one of their supported platforms and was since the beginning, and so is Microsoft Azure. So IaaS is a, is a great solution. But Azure, I kind of see as you got two options. You have the IaaS solution, the build-it-yourself, or you have RDS, which is the managed solution. Push the button, wait a few minutes, you get your database. Okay. And in one of them, on, sorry, you said Azure, you meant AWS. In, oh, uh, if you if you go with the um, IS solution, you're bringing your own license, whereas if you go RDS, you are paying Amazon for your license built into your operating costs. Is that right? Yes, I do believe they still do have the bring your own license versus the license included model, right, okay. where obviously your hourly charges are significantly higher. Because in any solution, in fact, when we were doing the case study that I mentioned earlier for a customer, I said to my colleague, you know what, the cost of the VM is almost irrelevant. It's peanuts compared to the cost of the Oracle licensing. The Oracle licensing is what drives everything up in cloud or on-premises. Right. But Going back to AWS, one of the big differentiators with RDS, RDS was very was one of the first managed services for Oracle, but it still is limited. So because they made it a managed service, they don't give you access to everything. It's almost like you leased a car from the car dealer, but they've glued the hood shut. You can't look underneath the hood. So you can't go check the oil with the dipstick because they need to protect that for, in order for them to provide you the service. So they've provided you some workarounds. So that's an analogy. The reality is they don't give you access to the operating system where your database runs. They don't give you access to the sys schema, which is the administrative schema directly. Instead, they've encapsulated a lot of the commands you want to do into their own utility sort of package. And, and, that means, again, you're limited. So, again, if you think about my example at the beginning, I don't know if it was a good metaphor, but I said it's like boxes, right? How much can you fit into the box they provide? So RDS provides a lot of advantages that way, that it's managed and easy to provision, but you are now got less Oracle functionality. 
so if you need some of this edge case functionality, maybe it's not going to be a technical fit for you. Got it. Okay. And I remember there being some special licensing considerations, something to do with CPU multipliers and stuff. That's what Bjorn and I covered back in episode four. I don't know if that's still relevant. Yeah, that is still relevant, and that's called a core factor multiplier, and that comes into what I briefly mentioned earlier. And to put it in basic terms, uh, like I said, Oracle license is generally based on what's called a processor unit. Is that a CPU? Is that a core? Well, it's kind of fuzzy, but but usually they say take the number of CPUs and then there's a core factor, right? So usually they, it's a half. Meaning, if you have two Oracle processor or processor unit licenses, and you multiply that by 0.5, that means you can have four Oracle virtual cloud CPUs, or you can have four vCPUs in Azure, or you can have four Solaris VPUs if you bought a Solaris Oracle machine kind of thing. Although then they they got more specific and they said, well, that Azure or AWS, that's only four if those are hyper threads. Actual cores is still two. So so they're doing all this. It's all this hokey pokey. You put your foot in, you put your foot out kind of thing. You multiply by 0.5, you divide by 0.5. It comes, you know, it all comes out in the wash. But long story short is, yeah, they're effectively giving you twice as much or people could perceive it as being twice as much on their own cloud and their own hardware that you might buy and use on premises versus other people's and hence Amazon, I haven't run the numbers on like I have with Azure lately, but I do believe AWS is probably going to be significantly more expensive to run the same Oracle workload. There's a couple of things that Oracle salespeople say that I do believe, and that is OCI is going to be the cheapest and highest performance place to run your Oracle workload. So I, I believe that two part compared to any other solution you can come up with. Now, they also, the parts I don't believe is when they tell you, oh, whatever you have, you have rack, sure, just lift and shift it. Well, not if you have a big rack, not if you have a Solaris rack. None, you know, there's catches to all that stuff. And then there's always the reliability concerns, blah, blah, blah. Yep, I, I get it. This is this is why we uh, DBA types drive other less technical folks crazy with our it depends. <laughs> yes, there's no straight answer. And there's no 100% certainty on everything, right? Like, no. I'll only give you 99% certainty. Exactly. All right, well, let's move on to the new kid on the block in the cloud game. What about Google? Is is there a cloud option for, uh, for Oracle on Google? Yeah, Google Cloud is very interesting, and, and there's uh, some of the features that I like about Google Cloud and, and running database workloads. Like, for example, a great example is their disk snapshot process is super fast and advanced, and that means, you know, uh, you can take snapshots and make 10 or 100 more copies of your database really quickly and easily um, using their disk technology, and I, I'm, I like that. But where it becomes a little bit of a difficult situation is with the Oracle licensing position again. So remember, like I said, if you run the free edition, well, you probably don't have a very big workload. You're not very serious, but you can run that anywhere. Most customers need to have a licensed version of Oracle. And Oracle does have its cloud licensing policy, and its cloud licensing policy talks about Azure and AWS and nobody else. Now, there's a whole bunch of caveats, and we could spend like a, a whole day-long podcast with a licensing authority on that. But long story short is... First of all, some people will say the cloud licensing policy is non-contractual, right? I'm 
licensing Oracle based on this many CPUs. I'm going to do it wherever I want to do it. Some people, other people fall into the category of I have a, a EULA, an unlimited license agreement, and that applies to a cloud. A third category of people say, well, you know what, I'm having dedicated hardware in Google Cloud, so I'm going to put it on a sole tenant node rather than a shared environment, so the number of CPUs is constrained, and I'm okay that way. And then a fourth option is that Google has announced through some of their partners is that they have a bare metal offering, which is kind of sitting right on the edge of GCP and provides dedicated bare metal hardware for you to run Oracle workloads. So um, I guess GCP is not as clean cut as those other clouds where there's a licensing policy and a core factor multiplier, and hence it's really a bit up to interpretation and customer's comfort, and probably they should work with a consultancy who specializes in just Oracle licenses to help them through that. Okay. Okay. So, so what I heard was, that, you know, that there wasn't a managed uh, managed offering on GCP. So GCP has their Cloud SQL, which is their managed service thing, and Cloud SQL has MySQL and Postgres, and I think a SQL Server they announced or added recently. There's no Oracle variant of that currently. Okay. The bare metal solution, which is running outside of uh, GCE, which is a Google Compute Engine which is their VM solution, it is kind of a similar but slightly different option to that. But, no, there's no true managed service in GCP like there is in AWS or RDS or like there is with Cloud SQL. And, actually, that's a funny thing. Let me just bring that up quickly. What did I say at the beginning of this? Oracle is terrible at naming stuff, right? So Cloud SQL is a, is a very common name to GCP specialists and people who know Google Cloud. Oracle also has announced they have Cloud SQL as well. But in theirs, it's something completely different. So it's not a managed service. It, it rather is a way of running queries now that branch from your database and sucks in data from different data sources, including things like Cloud Object Store, maybe an Amazon, all within a SQL statement. Hmm. So terrible naming. <laughs> but they're reusing the exact same name for some completely different product. Right, right, okay. And then the rationale for choosing Google's cloud to host your Oracle database, what um, would that be? My experience is is that you're going into Google Cloud for other reasons. So the couple of customers we dealt with is one, you know, is, is dealing very much by moving a lot of data into BigQuery, right, like little data points. And hence they, they're pushing big to Google Cloud for that reason because BigQuery is very good at very large data sets. Another one had a huge organizational commitment to GCP and wanted to move everything into GCP. So I don't think you're going to ever look at what is the best place for my Oracle infrastructure and choose GCP unless it's because you want to have bare metal stuff in the cloud. And, again, I would maybe argue that OCI has has had bare metal all along. Um, okay. I think it's for other reasons, right? You're going to GCP to take advantage of Google-specific stuff um, and one, and your Oracle workloads come along with that. Okay, that, that makes sense. So there really was, isn't a slam-dunk kind of public cloud. It's all weigh your factors and, and, and yeah. what's best to your situation. So, it, yeah, unfortunately, there's no slam dunk. It may look a little bit like there's more of a slam dunk when you put on the blinders and you just focus on one area. So if you just focus from a license perspective, well, 
Oracle Cloud is the best place. If you just focus on a technical perspective, then Oracle Cloud still is the best place. But if you're focusing on your bigger picture, your organizational needs, maybe you're going to look at Azure. Maybe you're going to look at Google Cloud for some of the, the cool stuff that they have with their machine learning and advanced analytics stuff. Okay. But I'll tell you, maybe you look at on-premises because one of the big challenges that we haven't discussed, which are common to all of the clouds, is still upgrades. Okay. So if you go with a managed service like AWS has RDS, Oracle has a number of different managed services. They, of course, have an Oracle database one. They provide you push-button patching. Oracle patching alone is a real pain in the butt. It's a huge amount of effort and complexity. And organizations who have a, a large Oracle estate, they could have two or three dedicated DBAs who just work on quarterly patching. That's unfortunate. That hasn't gotten better in recent years. So it's nice when you have a managed service that you can just say, oh, pushing the button and it's going to patch me. But it doesn't do big upgrades. None of the clouds really have that. So if you go into RDS, we have customers that come to us and say, you know what, I'm in RDS and I've been using RDS for many years and we're fine, but we're on 11G and we got to get up to Oracle 18C or 19C actually is the one you should be going to. How do we get from 11G to 19C? There's no push-button solution on the clouds for that. It becomes probably, one could argue, even more difficult to do on the cloud in a managed service than it would if you had it on-premises. So uh, without going into the technicalities of that, I think there's something to be said. And Oracle doesn't have a solution for that either. Now, the one caveat to that is Oracle's autonomous database, which is their completely managed service where you really just become a tenant in a bigger exadata and you pay just on capacity used. And, and that one they will upgrade for you. But that's kind of still a thorn in the side, regardless of which cloud vendor you go to. Okay. That makes sense as well. I think we've done a pretty good job of, of covering, you know, the implications and considerations as best we can and on a podcast anyway. Is there anything else on the topic you think we should discuss or cover? No, I see one other use case for the cloud and Oracle is as a backup or DR environment too. So I think customers who are a little bit uh, leery can explore that option. And Oracle actually provides some good integration points. So, you know, we talked about when you go fully committed so far in this podcast, right? You're moving your workload to the Oracle cloud or whatever cloud. Maybe dipping your foot into clouds without that full commitment is by using backups or DR. And I think you start that by dividing what are you looking for? Are you looking for a pure cold backup, meaning I'm going to run my backups, but I need to have them off-site anymore, uh, somewhere and where I used to give physical tapes to a vendor like Iron Mountain. Now we're just going to move them into object store in the cloud. Right. Or do we want to write directly to the cloud? And Oracle has some modules for Amazon and OCI that allows you to backup directly to the cloud. Or you could go a little bit deeper, which means I'm going to have a warm standby in the cloud, meaning I'm replicating everything to the cloud. I'm just not using it there. It's there in a warm standby state that I could switch to it if there was a disaster. And I know we're dealing with a, a biological pandemic disaster, but I do remember in 2013 in the geography where I am, we had a flood disaster and a lot of customers lost access to their buildings and their data centers because of that. So, so natural disasters could happen as well. And then the third level is to have a true hot standby, meaning we're going to actually start to use that standby for maybe reporting or backing up and, and stuff like that. But, again, 
we run into the Oracle licensing complexity. So as soon as we get to warm or hot, we need to look at what are we doing license-wise from the Oracle perspective. And, yeah, that's going to mean more money. But Okay. But you know, maybe yeah. just having backups there is off-premises for safety, and that doesn't cost you anything except for the storage costs. Yeah, I, I've been a, a long-time fan. It's funny because cloud adoption has moved so far forward since I started this podcast and since I started thinking about it, but I've been a long-term fan of just backing up or using it as a DR site to get used to it to get and, and to get comfortable with any public cloud. And and like you said, that, that actually almost instantaneously makes your decision for you. If you take that strategy, it's pretty easy to navigate the decision matrix on and select. Yeah, I, I would close by giving like some thoughts of where I see the cloud going for Oracle workloads. So from Oracle's perspective, they're going really big, pushing the autonomous database. And I mentioned that really briefly, and I think we talked about it in one of the previous podcasts, but basically it's the fully managed service that they provide. What we've said in this podcast a number of times is whenever something is fully managed, that means restrictions. You can't have every configuration under the sun or else it's not manageable by the vendors. So there's restrictions. So I, I know there was a customer and they were struggling with some performance in the cloud and I suggested autonomous database and Oracle's really pushing it hard and thinks that's their future. But right away, they had some really weird queries and we needed to provide a database setting change to work around a bug they were hitting with the queries. Oh, well, we can't do that with autonomous because that's part of the part they've locked us out of, right? And there's a couple other little examples. It's like, well, now we're going to have to actually change every query and hint it. Or then there was another security feature. Oracle has a ton of security features. Like there's so many technologies there. And this customer was using one, and I tested it in the cloud on the autonomous database, and it kind of half worked and then failed because it's maybe more obscure. And I talked to the product managers, and they're like, oh, yeah, well, open a support request, and that will help us motivate to get this added to autonomous database. So, again, Oracle's really pushing that this is their future, right? You're getting access to this super powerful Exadata hardware but you're only paying a few dollars an hour for the CPUs you use, and you become a tenant in a multi-tenant model. At the same time, customers, just due to the nature of Oracle, have all these very customized usages, which might include bug fixes and other little workarounds, and maybe they don't fit into that box that Autonomous paints. And so it'd be interesting to see how they make that work. Autonomous, of course, is going to get more features and more flexible, but at the same time, there's always going to be limits. So it'll be interesting. That's where I see them going. I do see other workloads going to either in IaaS or going to other managed services, whether it's Oracle or AWS, is just because I think it makes sense to do so. Okay. The episode where we talked about autonomous databases, which is a pretty fun one, was episode nine for anybody wanting to go back. And I think a lot of that's still relevant, except new features and capabilities, of course, added. All right. Well, I I think we've done a good job on this topic. So that's all the time we have for this one today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is by helping others to find us. And you can do that by telling them about the podcast or maybe just writing a short, honest review on your platform of choice, like, say, iTunes. We also love feedback here. You can send it over or ideas to datascapepodcast at gmail.com. And that's all we had. So thanks and have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape.